All right, well, good morning. Thank you, Drew. As Drew said, my name is Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor here, and uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor Janice are visiting some family uh, in Ohio. They're visiting a vineyard right now as we speak like a church, not like the place where you drink wine, but, you know, that's all good. Uh, so I get to be with you today, and I'm really, really excited about that. Um, you know, Drew is going on down, and you realize just how much stuff is going on right now. You know, all the, all the various announcements that he gave, but even in like an immediate context, like this very week is a big week, right? Because tomorrow is Labor Day. So I know a lot of you are going to have the day off. If you don't have the day off, I'm really sorry. Um, I hope you are able to enjoy another day that the rest of us have to work on. But uh, Labor Day is this week. And then Thursday at 8.20 p.m., the Bills play the Rams and NFL begins. All right. So it's a big week for that. Now, with NFL comes fantasy football. Okay. So a word to spouses, um, mostly wives probably, but spouses in general. Okay. If you're out to eat, if you're out on a date and your spouse has their phone out, they're probably checking their fantasy football lineup. Okay. We're in that part of the season. We're in that part of the year where fantasy football is kind of life, right? Um, I personally had to take the year off of fantasy football because I play fantasy like the other football, like they play across the pond, what they call it over there. And um, it is way too involved and way too and emotionally taxing and it can ruin my Saturday. So, you know, I, I, had to, I had to pump the brakes on fantasy sports. I'm stopping with just that. Um, because for me, like it, it's just, it's a personal issue. I totally recognize that. I'm not prescribing it for anybody, for anybody else. But it's just an issue of boundaries for me because for, for me, winning and fun go hand in hand. And uh, I had somebody come up to me in between the services and was like, well, you must not have a lot of fun then. It's like, okay, you didn't need to do that. But and anyway, all the same, um, if I'm involved in, in a sport or an activity or anything like that, where I feel like I have the slightest chance of winning, if I know a little something, you know, if I know football a little tiny bit, or if I'm playing a sport that, you know, I think I should be able to keep up, then I want to win, right? I'm not having a ton of fun if I'm not winning. Um, the, the way I'm constituted is that if I'm playing a game, especially if I'm playing a sport, like I can't help it. It's not a braggy kind of thing. I just, I can't give less than a hundred percent. Okay. The other day, this past week, we were out at Irvin McDowell Park uh, for Tasty Tuesdays where you can eat food from a food truck. And I brought my soccer ball along and me and a couple friends, we started kicking it around a little bit. And then all of a sudden, these kids kind of flee from the playground and they head over to us and they say, we want to play, we want to play. So we're like, okay, great. Come play soccer with us. And uh, we're playing soccer and, you know, next thing you know, start sweating just a little tiny bit. And then we play some more soccer and I'm being way too competitive about it. So I start sweating a lot. And, you know, I'm going back over to my friends when we're done to everybody that we were hanging out with. And they're like, Jeff, you're like really wet. I'm like, I know. Thanks for reminding me. I can't help it. I just, it, it's just the way that I am. So, you know, uh, the, the idea of, of tanking in sports, which if you're not familiar with that, you know, it's, it's where you kind of throw the season so that your team gets a better draft pick, basically, is how it works. That just, I, I can't conceive it. Like, I understand it, economically speaking, but I just can't conceive it. I can't imagine having the opportunity to play a sport and not just, like, giving it 100%. Uh, it, it's just something in the way that I'm constituted. I don't, I don't get that. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Nacho Libre, okay, 
I've been waiting for this moment all week, so I'm so excited to share it with you. If you've ever seen the movie Nacho Libre, you know the scene where um, they, they lose one of their many fights that they lose, and they're in the locker room afterwards, and Ignacio's saying, like, you know, the eggs were a lie, Steven, they gave me the legal powers, and all this kind of stuff. And then the guy walks in, and he hands them an envelope, and it's their payment for the fight. And Ignacio takes the envelope, and he throws it on the ground, and he says, I don't want to get paid to lose. I want to win. Right? That, like, identi- I identify with that line. I cannot imagine playing not to win. Okay? So, so that's just kind of where I'm at. So for the last couple of weeks, if you've been around, um, you know Joe has been going through the book of 1 Timothy. We're in our series called Not a Series right now. And he said that I can do whatever. I can keep going down that line of thinking or I can go wherever uh, I need to go. But it just so happens that I, too, have been reading 1 Timothy quite a bit lately. So I decided that I was going to stay in that lane. Um, So what we're going to do, go ahead and get your Bible, your Bible app ready. We're going to go to 1 Timothy 6, but while you're going there, um, understand that as Paul's writing the letter, he's writing Timothy a handful of instructions, Uh, and they're instructions on a number of things. He says, stay at Ephesus. He says, uh, charge people not to teach a different doctrine. He says, everybody needs to be praying for all people. He encourages order in the church. So he says, don't quarrel with each other. Don't domineer. Don't distract. Don't interrupt. Have an orderly service. Um, he, he instructs Timothy on what kind of people can be overseers or bishops, which, as Pastor Joe talked about last week, means a leader, pastor, lay pastor, that sort of thing. He talks about what kind of people can be deacons and what they need to be like. He tells Timothy to put the gospel in front of people, stick to the main point, keep the main thing the main thing. He tells Timothy to set an example for people. He tells him how to interact with older and younger men and older and younger women, how to honor and take care of widows, how to honor and take care of elders, on and on down the line. He's giving all these various instructions. And then we kind of get towards the end of the letter, um, and and we find ourselves at 1 Timothy 6. And and here Paul is kind of—it's less instructive, and it's more observational that he's laying out. He's saying that this is kind of what some people do, and this is what they think they're going to get out of it and all that sort of thing. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to read verses 3 through 12, and then we're going to go down through it. So Paul writes to Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, note that, it's a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
So as Paul lays this out, he's making an observation about certain types of people, about what godliness is and what it isn't and what some people think it is, about money and gain, and finally he gives Timothy a charge. If you're into writing down like the title of a message, uh, in my head this week I've just been calling this make or break because Paul is laying out some things that are going to make or break um, life in the body of believers or unity, if you will, uh, that, that can make or break a person as, as a man or a person of God, and that things that can make or break someone as a minister of the gospel. So the question I'm asking is, what, what is it going to take for us to win as the church? We've been talking about what the church is, uh, about what it's for, about why, it, it, why we do the things that we do. But today I want to ask, how, it is, how, how do we win? How is it that we win? So, because of the fact that I'm a preacher and this is the 21st century, we're going to do some good old-fashioned alliteration, okay? So we're going to talk this morning about doctrine, about desire, and about direction, okay? So number one, let's talk about doctrine for a little bit. What do you think of when you hear the word doctrine, okay? When I think of doctrine, I think of one of two things, kind of on either extreme. I either think of like a classroom where I'm just being taught a bunch of facts and a bunch of things and, you know, a bunch of information, or I think about a debate where people are sitting down and it's getting a little bit heated and they're raising their voices just a little bit and they're debating some of the finer points of doctrine. There is no shortage of things that people disagree on and debate about in the church. For example, people like to debate about predestination versus free will. People like to debate about women in leadership and in ministry and, and what their role is. People debate about sexuality and what the Bible says about it. People debate about whether or not the creation account in the book of Genesis is literal or if it's metaphorical. People debate about the nature of hell, if it's eternal conscious torment, if it's really a fire, if it's metaphorical for some other kind of suffering, if it's annihilationism where, you know, when you die, if you're not in Christ, you just kind of cease to exist forever, um, or, or universalism, which is kind of the idea that like maybe you go there for a little bit, but then eventually, because of what Jesus did, everybody gets to go into the kingdom eventually. People argue about the correct way to interpret the book of Revelation and the nature of the rapture or the second coming of Jesus, if it's pre-trib, if it's mid-trib, if it's post-trib. Uh, people, people argue about the extent of the atonement, whether it's limited or whether it's universal. Um, people, people argue about biblical inerrancy and what that word inerrant actually means. There is no shortage of things that people debate about, things that people fight about. All you have to do is go to amazon.com and type in counterpoints bible and theology and there's a whole book series and uh you know being a glutton for punishment sometimes i i, I enjoy reading those and what they do is they go through and one person presents their argument for their view and then the three other people kind of write a rebuttal to that and then the next person and so on and so forth and they're really interesting books but they make you they make you just kind of stop and say like i didn't realize just how many things that people fight about. I didn't realize th the extent to which people split hairs about things that some of them are really, really important. Others, others of them are like, seriously, we're, we're debating about this? Like, I, I don't necessarily understand that. So Paul, who wrote this letter, was alive in a time uh, in, in, in the in, uh, immediate aftermath of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And people were trying to figure out what it is that we need to do with Jesus. What is the deal with Jesus? Okay? And with that, as you can imagine, came a lot of debate and a lot of disagreement. 
So he writes a letter to the people of, um, I don't know if it's pronounced Colossa or Colossi or however you want to call it, but we call it the book of Colossians, okay? And he, he writes a letter to them, and you under, have to understand as you're reading that book that on one hand, there were people telling, telling people in Colossa, Colossi, Colossi, however, you know, that, that place, um, they were telling them that you still have to observe the Old Testament law, and you still have to keep all the feasts, and you still have to observe the Sabbaths, and you still have to do all that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, they had a, a, um, 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 a, another part of culture that was saying that Jesus is welcome into this whole big pantheon of what we call lowercase g gods. That like, sure, Jesus can come into the club. He's fine, but he's not like better than the rest of them. He's just another one that you can worship. So as you're reading through the book of Colossians, just kind of look at it through that lens and you'll start to see that Paul is trying to correct and, and bring them into a, a place where it's like, okay, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He didn't abolish it, but he fulfilled it. And he gave us a new law that can be summed up by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But also, he's not just another God, okay? He is supreme. He, in, in him, the, the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. All things were made through him. All things exist for him, so on and so forth. So that's where Paul is when he's writing to the Colossians. And in the course of events, he writes this to the Colossians. Um, and and he, he's saying things, because he'll say, I say this. Just understand when he says, I say this, he's saying things, okay? Uh, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And I'll just tell you why I love that verse, okay? Because Paul doesn't say with foolish or stupid or like totally irrational arguments. He says, these arguments are plausible. And I just appreciate that because I'm the type of person that's like, okay, we can't necessarily dismiss things out of hand super, super quickly. Just because I hear an idea or I hear an argument that doesn't fit with what I've always thought or what I've always been told or what I've always believed, it doesn't mean it's a stupid argument. In fact, oftentimes they are quite plausible, right? People will formulate their argument in such a way that it's like, I never saw it that way. I never knew that that's what that meant. Huh, that kind of makes sense. But Paul is encouraging the Colossians to think a little bit critically. Don't let people just delude you and lead you astray. You have to think a little bit for yourself. Okay, Paul describes the person, we're back to 1 Timothy now. Paul describes the person who teaches a different doctrine and disagrees with Jesus. He says they're puffed up. They don't understand anything, even though they think they do. Okay. They crave controversy. They want to quarrel of words. They're just out there to get people fired up. Okay. He says that then those quarrels lead, uh, their, their quarrels about words, they lead to envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. In other words, you start to doubt people's hearts and their motive and their intention and constant Friction is what Paul says. In other words, if you want to write this down, doctrine will make or break your unity. Okay? And I just want to pause here for a second to, to, to fixate on a word that, that, that Paul uses. Paul specifically says if anyone teaches a different doctrine or disagrees with the sound words of Jesus. And let me just tell you, I'm kind of a curious person sometimes. I, I like to imagine and I like to speculate a little bit. I was talking to somebody recently, and I was telling him when I was younger, please note, when I was younger, okay, I used to wonder, like, 
in a past life, was I like Russian or something? And then, you know, did I, did I, did that person die? And then like the soul got sucked up into the soul recycler. And then when there's a new baby born, the soul gets distributed. And like, I don't realize that I lived in the past, but like I did or something. I don't know. I just, that's, that's where my mind went when I was a kid. I wondered about these kind of things. I do not believe in reincarnation. Okay. Just let me make that clear. Okay. I was talking to somebody last week. He was telling me about a, uh, a Twitter thread that he read, which kind of put forward the theory that um, Lazarus, who you read about in the Gospels, like the guy who was, you know, raised from the dead and all that, um, that he had some kind of disability, whether that was physical, mental, learning disability, something like that. And it's like, okay, we're not necessarily told that, but I can see the, the plausibility of your argument. That's fine. That's, that's an interesting theory. Or sometimes you'll hear a preacher or a writer who's, who's, you know, writing something, they'll embellish a story and they might add a line of dialogue or they may add that, you know, so-and-so was thinking this or feeling this, or they said this, or then they went and did this. And they'll do that because they're a storyteller. They're trying to kind of embellish the story and make it a little bit more vivid for you to imagine. Now, the question is, is that wrong? And I personally don't think so. Okay. I don't think it's wrong because the whole point is you're wondering, but Paul says, if anyone teaches, right? So, so I don't think that you can't wonder, but what is dangerous and what we have to be careful of is if we start teaching as fact and as doctrine, things that we are speculating on, especially when those things are, are, are contrary to the gospel, or as Paul puts it, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. We cannot speculate and put forward and preach and assert things that don't line up with the gospel. Okay, earlier in the letter, Paul said to Timothy, if you want to back up to 1 Timothy 3.16, but again, we'll put it on the screen for you. Paul said to Timothy, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, was, he Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so as you're reading your Bible, if you have that out on like a physical Bible, there's going to be like indentation, which, and it, it it's, goes line by line, which usually implies that this is either a poem or it's a song. And people speculate as to whether or not Paul wrote this or whether Paul was quoting something that people in that day and age would have been familiar with already. But the point is, these are the things that constitute the gospel. And if anyone disagrees with them, if they disagree with the fact that Jesus was God incarnate, or in the song, manifested in the flesh, if he was vindicated by the Spirit, which means resurrected by the Holy Spirit, if he was seen by angels, in other words, he started in the presence of God, and he lived, and then he ascended back into the presence of God, if, if they disagree with the fact that he's proclaimed among the nations, in other words, the gospel goes forth, and it goes forth in power, if they disagree with the fact that he uh, um, is believed on in the world, as in he has a real and a relevant presence in the world today, and then he was taken up in glory, which just means ascended back to the Father. If somebody teaches or, or, or disagrees with that doctrine, if they, if they teach something that is contrary to that, if they disagree with that, don't listen to them. They're just out for a fight. So here's the point. At the end of the day, we have to defer to Jesus. With where we're standing right now, we have to defer to Jesus. You can wonder all you like. You can interpret scripture all you like. But at the end of the day, the question is, what does the Bible say about what the Bible says? What does Jesus say on the matter? 
And we have to be careful what we teach. We have to be careful what we put forward. Um, the, 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 the Bible says that those who, those who teach will be judged with, with greater harshness or strictness or whatever that uh, word is. But here, here's what that might look like, okay? And I've been here because I, I was thinking about this earlier in the year. It's still kind of fresh in my mind. But, you know, you take the debate about hell and what is it and what is it actually like. And you may not be sure. You may not be sure if hell is literal. You may not be sure if it's metaphorical, if it's annihilationism, you know, all those kind of things. And, you know, that's a whole rabbit hole. But Jesus seemed to speak of it as though it was a real place that people actually go to. And regardless of where you land on it, about its actual nature, at the end of the day, it's not a place where you want to be, right? Like whether whether it's physical suffering, whether it's some other kind of suffering, whatever, that's not where we want to be. We want to be in the presence of God. And so I have to defer to what Jesus says about it. So I'm not going to sit up here and I'm not going to preach that it is this, 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 and that if it disagrees with what Jesus says. Does that make sense? Or um, you may not know for sure what, whether or not um, the Bible condemns or celebrates or condones certain things with regard to human sexuality. And I recognize this is a super, super hot topic. You, you may have heard the arguments and people explaining to you that, you know, this verse is really taken out of context, or that word doesn't mean what it means to us today, and so therefore, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you, we can just kind of disregard it all. I read a whole entire book where the guy just goes through and piece by piece tries to disarm, uh, you know, six major passages in the Bible to say, you know, the Bible doesn't say about sexuality what you think it says about sexuality. And, and this is the thing. It's a difficult topic to wrestle with. It really, really is. Okay? Wrestle with it. All that you want. But at the end of the day, the danger is in in reasoning through it with my own emotional and cognitive and cultural framework in mind and not deferring to Jesus. And Jesus cites the fact that a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. Okay? That's what Jesus put forward. Paul, who I recognize is not Jesus. Okay? Paul preached Jesus. Jesus does not preach Paul. But Paul says things like he did to Timothy. He says, The law is for the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and their fathers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, so on and so forth. Recently, um, when we had the opportunity to go, there was a team of us. We went on the campus on the first day of classes. We set up a tent. We were giving out like bottles of water and ale and cold brew and talking to people and encouraging them on the first day. It was awesome. But the third person who came up to the tent, like what, he, what this guy led with was, so what does your church do with the queer community? And it's like, wow, okay, that's where we're starting today. And this is what I had to say to him. I said, we're not going to be what you, what you would consider an affirming church, which is we're not going to just sit here and say that this is all totally fine. This is all totally great. Okay, but we're not going to throw a rock at you either. We were going to invite you to come and we're going to invite you to seek Jesus. The way I look at it, is it's not for me to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. My, my job is to look at what Scripture gives me to work with. And there's enough in Scripture that, make, that casts a lot of doubt on the idea that what you're saying is totally, totally fine. I said, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to wrestle with that yourself. I said, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to hell, but I'm not going to tell you that you're not. Okay? You have to wrestle with that. Here's the thing. We don't throw rocks because Jesus didn't throw rocks. 
If there's an issue of, of doctrine or belief within the church that you're wrestling with, wrestle away. I, I really believe that that is fine. I really believe that that is healthy. But when it comes to what we teach, what we put forward, what we say is right and what we say is wrong, it is dangerous for us to do anything other than to defer to Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. Our doctrine makes or breaks our unity. And the last thing we want to do, if we want to win at doing life in community as the body of believers, is to lead people away from Jesus or to present Jesus as being different from who and what he actually is. We have to be connected to and in alignment with the head who is Jesus Christ. All right, number two. At the tail end of his spiel on people who, who teach a different doctrine, Paul gets at another one of their characteristics, of their, their, their intentions, besides, you know, just craving controversy and wanting to make people fight and argue. He says that they imagine that godliness is a means of great gain. Now, in our day and age today, there is no shortage of skepticism uh, that, that pastors, preachers, televangelists, all those kind of people are just in it for the money. Okay? Now, unfortunately, some of, that, some of that criticism, some of that skepticism seems to be justified. Okay? We see people flying around in private jets. Some people own big, exorbitant houses um, or, or, or whatever. And even if it's not money that they're after, sometimes people are after other kinds of gain. Maybe it's social gain. Maybe they just want to build a name for themselves. They want to say, oh, you know, I wrote X amount of books or what have you. But let's be honest for a second. Let's be real for a second. First of all, I would suggest that most people who go into ministry do not do it for the money, okay? And you can insert your jokes about church salaries right here, okay? But most people start in ministry because they, they are in it because it's a calling and because God orchestrated their entry into the ministry. Second, there is something to be said for the idea of the laborer deserving their wages. In fact, Paul mentioned this a little bit earlier in the letter. He quoted that very uh, idea. In the early church... Preaching and teaching were a big deal, and they, were, they, were, they deserved an honest wage. Is, that's the way it was treated. If you were here last week, you, you, uh, Pastor Joe was preaching through a, uh, through a text where they said, hey, we need to devote ourselves to the preaching of the word and to teaching and to prayer. And so other people need to do things like serve tables because we have to devote ourselves to this. Okay? 1 Corinthians 9 Paul mentions this to the Corinthians as well. He is serving them earnestly, eagerly, honestly. He's serving them very, very well. And he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap something material from you? But then Paul can, goes on to say he doesn't make use of that right. He doesn't, wanna, he doesn't want anybody to take away his right to boast about that. But the principle remained that the laborer deserved their wages. Now, if I can go just down a quick side note on this. Um, let's talk about tithing for just a second, okay? There are three of us on the pastoral staff, and two of us don't enjoy talking about money. One has no problem with that. I'm one of the two. Um, but I do still feel like this needs to be said. Sometimes people ask if tithe needs to go to your local church, or if you can tithe to an online ministry or a charity or something like that. Um, sometimes people will ask if you're leaving a church or if you're in a place where you're, you know, visiting churches, is it okay to just tithe to my old church? Because, you know, I believe in their mission, all that kind of thing. And I will tell you that when I was younger and when I was moving on from the church I grew up in, I did continue to tithe there. But over the course of my life, my, my, my view on that has kind of switched. And here's what I think about that now. If anyone asks me where they should tithe, this is what I'll tell you. If you are going to a church 
and, 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 and you are drinking their coffee or eating their donuts or dropping your children off at their kids ministry where they're, where your children are eating animal crackers and other snacks that that church bought. If you are flushing their toilets and using their paper towels to dry your hands, so on and so forth. If you're, if you're sitting in their air conditioning, you know, if, if, if you're benefiting from that church, then I do tend to think that that is where your money should go. That is where your gift should go. Even if it's just for the week, because the laborer deserves their wages. Okay. It's not money grabbing. It's, it's a biblical principle. Okay. That said, moving on. Um, the third thing is intentions are largely invisible. And I think that that's on purpose. Okay. I think it's really hard for us to know what someone is actually thinking because it's God who judges the thoughts and the intentions of people. So let's be careful before we start just, you know, putting people in one camp or another saying that this is why they're doing what they're doing. Let God judge that. And as we'll see in a minute, Paul tells Timothy to flee these kinds of things, not to stick around and argue with people about like, well, you know, your intentions for being in ministry are not good and, you know, mine are good or whatever. He says, flee. Don't even go near that. Let's stay far, far away from that. The person that's in it for gain, according to Paul, falls into temptation, into a snare, into a trap, into senseless and harmful desires that take people into ruin and destruction. When your goal is what you can gain, whether that's notoriety or influence or money or any other kind of resources, and not on the message, it ruins you. In other words, what you desire will make or break you as an individual. Because how it works is if I'm in it for the gain, if I'm, just in, if I'm just doing this thing for what I can get out of it, then I, they start to compromise. Okay, I compromise the purity of the message for what's reasonable or what's palatable or what's popular or what's acceptable. I'd go for what's going to make people feel good. I'd promise them that if they would do this, then God will do that. If you pray, if you give, if you read your Bible, God will definitely bless you, so on and so forth. I'd say yes to people to win their favor. I would tell them that what, what, what some people say is sinful is not sinful. I'd put on a show so that people would be entertained. And I wouldn't worry about worshiping in spirit and in truth because I would just want to worship in popularity and in style. If there's any ambiguity in life, I would explain it away by chalking it up to a lack of faith or lack of effort. If you just believe more, do more, be more, give more, God will take care of it. But somewhere along there in, in that process, I would lose the authenticity of what it means to follow Jesus. I would lose the integrity of my own life. And quite frankly, I'd lose touch with reality about what's actually true. If my life isn't based on Christ, then my life is based on what I can get. Who cares about what's true as long as it is attractive? Who cares about what's authentic as long as it looks and sounds good? And that's why we can't be in it for the gain. It ruins us. It's going to destroy us. We're in it because godliness is the gain. Okay? I don't know if you clocked this, but as we're, as we're reading through, Paul, Paul says that some people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, if I'm godly, if I'm part of the church, if I do this, that, and the other, then I might get something out of it, and it might take me somewhere. But Paul later goes on to say that godliness with contentment, which we don't necessarily have time to go down that right now, but godliness with contentment is great gain. When you've gained Christ, you've gained everything that you need. Jesus in and of himself is the gain. As Paul puts it to the Philippians, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, which means garbage or sometimes even worse, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says earlier in the letter that, that godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, as in right here and now, but also for the life to come. So we're not just talking about the sweet by and by when one day this whole life where I follow Jesus and do his teachings and all that kind of stuff, one day that'll pay off. It's not just an investment in the future. It is a benefit right now. The gospel is working right now. In this life, we experience the gospel setting things right in our lives, in our personal holiness, in our communities, in our cities, and in our world. The gospel restores the individual, giving freedom from addiction and bondage, giving joy that perseveres over circumstances, and offering a way to live that is no longer bent on the self in the way that just destroys us. We're able to be dead to sin and alive to God, and that is the gain of godliness. If that's not your aim, if that's not why you do this, then that will destroy you. What you desire will make or break you. And then finally, Let's just talk for a quick second about direction, and then we'll get out of here. Okay? Paul tells Timothy towards the end of that passage, As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Doctrine matters, desire matters, and your direction matters. You hear us say around here all the time that, that what matters most is where your feet are pointed. Okay, it, it doesn't matter if you screw up. It doesn't matter if you get something wrong. If there's an issue of belief or doctrine that you get wrong, God help you. Keep moving forward. Okay, if you mess up, if you screw up, get back up, repent, and go after Jesus. That word, pursue, that Paul uses in its original Greek means to run after, to follow after, to seek after eagerly, and to press on. In its more aggressive meaning, it means to persecute or to not leave alone, to pester. So what Paul's saying is pester it, pursue it, persevere after it, persecute it, don't leave it alone. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, go after them eagerly. Go after it with everything that you have. And that's what we want, we want to do if we want to be the church, if we want to win at being the church, because our direction will make or break our ministry and our witness. So this is what I want to encourage us in. This is what I want to leave you with. Seek righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Seek those things into the place where you work. Seek those into your school. Seek those things into your friendships, into your marriage and in your relationships. Seek those things into your hobbies, the things that you just enjoy doing. Do them with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Seek that into our community. Don't give up when you mess up. Repent, get back up, and keep going after Jesus. Don't give up when someone around you or someone that you admire gives up or quits the race. Leave them to God. Keep moving forward. Don't give up when you have questions. 
wrestle with those questions and keep moving forward. Keep going after Jesus. The bottom line is that doctrine will make or break our unity. So we defer to Jesus and we don't stray away from him. Desire will make or break our souls. So we aim to desire godliness, God for God's own sake, not just what we can get out of it. And direction will make or break our ministry and our witness. So we make Jesus our aim and we keep going his way in all things. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the encouragement that we get out of it. We want to thank you for the fact that you've given us the path to go. God, we want to thank you um, for this church body. We want to thank you for this community and what it means to do life together. And God, Holy Spirit, we invite you in this moment. We ask you to lead us and to guide us. God, we know that, that we will be made or broken by what we believe to be true about you, by what we want out of life following you, and by the direction that we're going in. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask you for help. We're human. We make mistakes. We, we mess up every single day, but we want to go after you. So God, give us grace, give us mercy in our limited understanding as we, as we are seeking to, to, to follow you in our community. God, give us grace in those moments where we fall short. Give us grace in the moments where we fail to understand what it is that you've said or what it is that you're asking us to do. God, we don't ask that you, that you let us get away with everything. We ask that you would correct us. We ask that you would, would put us on the right track to follow after you. And we ask, God, that in the process, as we seek to live out the Christian faith in our communities. God, we ask that, that people would notice and that you would give us the opportunity to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the life that we have in Jesus Christ, to share that with the world who needs it so desperately. God, we are people who need you this morning. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.